you have that anxiety and that fear of trying to get the investment, you're not going to be able to focus and do your due diligence properly the way that it needs to be done. And I would say that's probably one of the most hindering factors by not having your investor pool up. Best ever listeners, where are you going to be on February 22nd and 23rd? I am visualizing that you're going to be in Denver, Colorado, because that's where the best ever conference is. And that's when it is February 22nd, 23rd. Go to besteverconference.com and even put in take five so you get 5% off your ticket. So that is T-A-K-E and the number five whenever you purchase your ticket. And buy now because ticket prices go up weekly. So go to besteverconference.com. You can read all about the conference, the agenda, the speakers. We've got an incredible speaker list focused on commercial real estate. So that includes five plus units if you're in multifamily. And you're going to get a lot of value from this conference. Go to besteverconference.com. It's the third time we've done it. It improves every year and we have raving reviews. I'm not just saying it. Ask people who have attended every year. Besteverconference.com. Enter take five, T-A-K-E five when you purchase your ticket and get an extra 5% off. Ticket price is going up weekly, so get it today. Best ever listeners, today's guest is being interviewed by Theo Hicks. You know Theo, he's with us every Friday on Follow Along Friday. You're going to get a lot of value from this conversation. So with that being said, let's get going. Hi, best ever listeners, and welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm your host today, Theo Hicks, as Joe is traveling to Texas today to look at a few apartment deals. Today, I'm speaking with Matt Ryan. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. Isn't Matt Ryan a quarterback in the NFL? Unfortunately, he is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing you're not a fan of the Falcons? Not so much the Falcons, but I need to get to his level of fame so people can refer to him as Matt Ryan. <laughs> That's fine. So a little bit more about Matt's background before we get started. He is a social entrepreneur, founder of Revive, which addresses the market inefficiencies in community revitalization efforts. He is focused on multifamily, value add, and development in distressed areas. He's based in San Francisco, California, and you can say hi to him at re-viv.com. So Matt, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, my current focus is, as we said, multifamily value add and development, specifically within distressed areas and around primary and secondary markets. I think of these are the census tracts that are the blossoming neighborhoods, the neighborhoods that are, to use an industry term, rapidly gentrifying. So what a lot of Revive's focus on is not just the investment, but also trying to pair with nonprofits and community entities to create what we call a social impact-based investment model, where we're basically funneling a portion of pre-tax profits into those communities and also trying to focus on providing long-term affordable housing and workforce housing. So... Obviously, someone who's a regular investor doesn't have to, as you mentioned, work with other nonprofits and other organizations. So kind of do you want to talk about how that works? How do you find them? What do they do to help you with the business plan and things like that? Yeah, it's really kind of at the tail end of what we do. So, you know, a lot of what we focus on, like I said, is the value add portion, innovative approaches to affordable housing through co-housing. That's a particular model that we've looked at right now. We actually have a project right now that we're doing. So if you look at, like, say, a co-housing model, 
we're actually providing rents that are 35% below with no subsidies. But back to your question as far as the actual funneling into the nonprofits, it's at the tail end. At the simplest form right now, we're just using 1% of pre-tax profits from the asset management company and then finding local nonprofits and community organizations and donating directly to them. And that's really the simplest form that we do it right now. In the long term, we're trying to focus our efforts around, like I said, innovation around not only just the affordable housing space, but also around workforce housing and policy and helping drive positive policy that can actually incentivize developers to preserve affordable housing as well as develop it. And I think one of the key things that we were going to talk about on the podcast here, which is a great opportunity, is the Opportunity Zones that just came out, which is a provision in the tax code that is directly incentivizing investors to take money and invest in distressed census tracts. Okay, so Opportunity Zones. You said it's a provision in the tax code that essentially incentivizes developers to develop in these distressed areas. What types of incentives are there? Is just you know, tax breaks? Do they help you fund a portion of uh, development? How does that work? So it's very similar to a 1031 exchange, but it's actually more generous than a typical 1031 exchange, not only in just the way that it's structured, but also in the actual deferred capital gain. So with a 1031, I have a $100,000 capital gain. I invest in a project. I'm just deferring that capital gain, right? Especially if I say only 30 grand of that is capital gain and the other 70,000 was my original basis or my original investment, right? Well, with an opportunity zone, if you have the $100,000 capital gain, you can invest that into another project and actually defer the gains through the investment, through the life of the investment, if you keep it in an opportunity zone fund or an investment within an opportunity zone for 10 full years. And if you do with a five or seven year term, there's a 10 and 15% step down on the actual capital gain that you pay. So again, very similar to a 1031 format, specifically applies to capital gains and capital gains only, but it's not just real estate gains. It also applies to stock gains and other various capital gains that are recognized. So is there like a list of these opportunity census tracts somewhere? Yes. If you just say Google for us, Opportunity Zones California, that will take you to a designated page that will pull up an interactive map that you can go in there and, and check out the Opportunity Zones in your area. They typically do that by state. The local governments have designated these census tracts. So yeah, this was done as of April of this year. And you can just it usually Google's the best way to go about it for sure. And then would there be actual listings on there or would you say, hey, this is the census tract. So any property you buy in this area or any land that you develop on this opportunity zone, you get those tax incentives. Yeah, it is up to you to find the investments. And it is also up to you to ensure that your investment or if you do an opportunity zone fund, which I know some larger syndicators and investors are doing, that if you're doing a fund, at least 90% of your assets are located within an opportunity zone. If you want to do a one-off investment, Theo, you could basically just invest in one individual home or project. You just need to make sure that it's in a designated census tract. But as far as finding the deals, I think it's interesting you bring that up. There's tech companies that are already starting to create specialty software to help pull assets in these areas. So there's a little bit of tech navigating to that. But right now, it's just really be checking the website, using whatever your favorite lead generation tool is, and you know, obviously working with brokers who know the areas well enough to be able to say, hey, find me deals in these specific areas. 
So how are you finding these deals? Are you using all those strategies you just mentioned? So I guess what's your best way to find these deals? Yeah, we use a couple different software tools that basically aggregates within specific census tracts. We're using the overlays, the opportunity zone overlays that are given to us by the state government. And then from there, just using whatever your favorite legion tool is and pulling assets and then either cold calling or then also, as you said, kind of using broker relationships to say, hey, you know, I'm not sure if you have some listings that are in around these areas, but these areas obviously for us makes a bit more sense. And the one thing I should mention, and probably hopping a little bit ahead here, is that there are some strict guidelines as far as how you invest in opportunity zones. And what I mean by that is a typical value add player may have some limiting factors because what you have to do is you have to increase your basis by whatever you designate the actual property to be. So let's just take a million dollar property. You say the land is worth $400,000 and the building's worth $600,000. In order to qualify for an opportunity zone, you have to invest at least $600,000 into that property in order to qualify for the tax deferral. Of course, the reasoning behind that is they want to spur job growth. They want to spur development in these areas. And I will say originally, the original guidance they had given is that you had to do 100% of your overall investment. So a million bucks, had to invest a million bucks. They've actually scaled that back to make it a little bit more, not easy, of course, but a little bit more forgiving, if you will, to investors. So really heavy value add plays as well as development plays are really going to be the only types of opportunities that you would want to pursue. So you do the value add and the development. Which one do you do more of? Right now, we've been mostly focused on value add, but with this provision, you know, the opportunity zone provision, and really kind of within our thesis, we were tracking this piece of legislation for about two years before it actually came out, actually using the nonprofit who came out with some of the original Distressed Community Index, the Economic Innovation Group. We were using some of their data to help identify potential markets. So with that being said, we're navigating more towards development plays and actually creating an opportunity fund for smaller development, smaller in the small balance space, basically anything in the 5 to $20 million range. So we'll be focusing and shifting our business plan a little bit more towards development, but still trying to focus on heavy value add and even smaller value add plays that may not be outside of an opportunity zone. I know a very common question that I hear a lot is how do you underwrite the highly distressed properties? Because, you know, typically <laughs> for, for a value add, it's going to have a decent enough occupancy that you can use historicals to figure out what the ongoing expenses are going to be. But if it's super distressed, you can't really base your underwriting assumptions on the current expenses. So do you want to kind of talk about what your process is for underwriting these deals and figuring out what the purchase price is? Yeah, carefully, (laughs) carefully. You have to find a local expert. Usually that's a property management company, someone who's been embedded in the community for a while who can really tell you what your predicted rents are going to be once you're finished. If you're a heavy value add player, it's how far do you want to push your product? And is there individuals within that marketplace that are going to appreciate the product that you're delivering? For workforce housing, we're finishing a project right now in Sacramento where we may have overdone the finishes a little bit. And I think you have to just be careful about understanding who your actual tenant base is going to be. So I think that's really one of the key things, a property management company who can help you with that. As far as the underwriting, there's really no silver bullet. You really have to be diligent. I come from a construction background. I owned a construction company for five years in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
So I have a lot of that experience that I carry with me that is very beneficial in the underwriting process. And we now have people that we're working with in our marketplace that are well-seasoned design build, general contractors, integrated architect, and general contractors who have almost 10 years experience. So being able to have those partners is really kind of key to your underwriting because as you know, from an investor, you're the conductor and you need to have a good orchestra who can go out there and give you all the bits and pieces you need so you can assemble a good underwriting form. And then from there, I think it's just a matter of being having this discussion with a property manager yesterday for a project. You really have to embed little pieces of conservatism in your underwriting. And I joked with him. I said, I kind of embed little nuggets of money everywhere in my, within my underwriting pro forma. So I know that I've got some juice in my pro forma that if things go wrong, we write in good contingencies. And I'm just very conservative in that. So that way I never feel like I'm running up against the wall as far as our underwriting is concerned, because there's so many things that can come up in a heavy value add play. So the only thing I would add in the end is really spending your time and due diligence to walk the building and not just walk the building, but spend time in the building. Look around. By the third or fourth time that you're actually in a building, it's amazing to me as many times and hundreds of homes that I've spent inspecting, I'll come back the second, third or fourth time and I'll find something new. I'll find something interesting that I didn't see before. So that's so invaluable and you can't just count on necessarily someone who's in a hired inspector to have that diligence. Oh, yeah, seriously. Best of our listeners know my experience with vectors. So <laughs> I totally understand what you're saying there. How are you actually funding these deals? Is that what that opportunity fund is or is that something different? Yeah, so we'll be launching an opportunity fund for everything that we do from a value add position has mostly just been the 506 B and C working with accredited and non-accredited and syndicating our deals as one-offs. And then I've also done a lot of personal deals and grown a personal portfolio. And most of that's been through family and friends or in, in most cases, taking on the debt myself. So when you're raising money from accredited investors and when you're doing it yourself, that's different than the opportunity fund. Well, opportunity funds are absolutely going to be investor led. So we'll either be doing one-off investments through syndications, but we ideally, as I said, we're looking to create a fund, more of a semi-blind pool than a true fund structure. We'd like to get a fund structure if that makes sense. It's just the rigidity of that and the time and the energy and as well as the money. We have to see how much for fear of redundancy or opportunity or how many deals are out there in these areas that really pencil. There's been a lot of, of course, people excited about them. A lot of naysayers are saying, hey, be careful. These are going to be dangerous deals. These are going to be deals that people are going to stretch themselves on. And I think there's some truth to that, but obviously you want to be conservative. And for our perspective, we're just, we're really going to get out there and raise some capital and then be aggressive about what we can do as far as their fund structure makes sense or individual one-off syndications. Okay, so essentially you're just raising money like everyone else, but it's in this opportunity fund and it's used to purchase these properties in these opportunity zones. Exactly. And then I'll just highlight again that the opportunity zone fund is really, it's a setup for those individuals who have capital gains. If they want to defer their capital gains, they can invest in an opportunity fund and they have 180 days to take their funds and put into an opportunity fund. So once the money's in the fund, then you have 31 months to deploy the capital and to actually invest and improve the property. So again, 1031, I think is what? 45 days to identify, 180 days to close. So you're seeing a greater level of flexibility, a greater level of flexibility as far as the type of capital gain that can be put into an opportunity fund. And that's why I think it would make a great 
investment mechanism for us. Again, if we get the fund put together and raise enough capital for it, I think it may certainly make sense, but we're still going to be looking for investments. And if we had an investor who could bring a lion's share, a couple million dollars and do a value add, heavy value added development to that investment, I think it also makes sense to do one-offs and give them that opportunity because the, the reporting structure for this is so simple. They literally have already put out a sample two-page tax form that basically you have fill out every year for your investment. So they've really tried hard to make this easy. As I said, the fund structure makes it a little bit more complex, but they've ironed that out. They've given investors a great deal of flexibility with 180 days and then 31 days to deploy the capital. So for someone who's listening to this podcast and is telling themselves, hey, this sounds like a great investment idea. What is your best real estate investing advice ever to that person to get started in this opportunity zones? <laughs> are we talking about, are they already a real estate active investor or a passive investor? Let's say they're an active investor. Okay. So if they're an active investor, you definitely need to understand where your opportunity zones are first and foremost. And secondly, you need to think about structure what your capital stack looks like. Can you raise enough equity to do a fund? Do they have the experience to put a fund together? Or does it make more sense for you to try to find a building or one-off investment in an opportunity zone and then try to syndicate that deal? That would be where I would start first and foremost. And I think other thing that's been fruitful for us is finding other individuals that you could potentially partner with who may be good JVs, and maybe you guys can pull your money together and get into a bigger investment or be able to set up a fund yourself. I think those would be good starting points for anyone to be interested. Is there a go-to website or a book or a blog where people can learn more about this investment strategy? Yes, we'll be posting a webinar that Anil Bawa of a syndication group here in San Francisco. We just did a webinar and series on it. And to be honest, we'll have that on our website and our blog here shortly. If you just Again, Google search opportunity zones right now, you would be hard pressed to not find a plethora of information. And anyone who has specific questions, feel free to reach out to me. I'll give you guys my email address at the end and I'll give it to you right now. Again, it's Matt, M-A-T-T dot Ryan, R-Y-A-N at R-E dash V as in Victor, I V as in Victor dot com. Are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. All right. First, a quick word from our sponsor. Best ever listeners, best ever conference. That's where you want to be, February 22nd and 23rd in Denver, Colorado. Put in the code TAKE5, T-A-K-E, and the number 5 to get an extra 5% off. Ticket prices go up weekly, so buy it today, besteverconference.com. You can read all about the conference at the website, all about the speakers. You can read about them and what you will experience when you're there besteverconference.com. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com and there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. All right. What is the best ever book you've recently read? 
That's always a tough one. And I've debated this one a lot in my mind before <laughs> I hopped on here. I'd say one of my more recent favorites, and I'm reading his second book right now, is a guy named Jocko Willink. Are you familiar with him? I, yeah, I know who Jocko Willink is. So Discipline Equals Freedom. That was one of the books that I read at the beginning part of this year. And it's funny, I can like almost hear that guy like screaming at me through the book. If for those of you who don't know him, he's an ex-Navy SEAL and now does a ton of business training as well as Navy SEAL training. And he's just a simple way and format in which he institutes his philosophies, not only in business, but in the military. It's just been very profound for me and something that I really enjoy. And if you follow him on Twitter or Instagram too and see him post pictures of his watch at like four o'clock in the morning, covered in sweat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's one of those guys that in his second book, um, oh gosh, of course I'm drawing a blank now. Extreme ownership. He's one of those people. He exudes leadership. I don't know how you feel, Theo, but when I see that watcher, if I see something like a post of his, kind of motivates me to want to get up the next morning. <laughs> you know, it makes yeah. me feel like a big wuss for staying in bed and getting up at five or five thirty. What is the best ever business decision you've recently made? Wow, that's a tough. Recently, I had kind of thought back to my original investment. So my first ever investment was a duplex that I did in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that was really kind of the catalyst for me. It was at a time that I was still in my construction company and allowed me to really pivot and think about real estate as a career and also led into the thesis behind what Revive is by way of experience of a community member there, Miss Pam, who was a community member in this gentrifying neighborhood, worked two jobs, took care of her grandkids, took public transit to her night job. And at the time, she was one of those people that I thought of that said, what happens to this person as these neighbors continue to turn over? And for her, she was kind of an inspirational person to me to think like, well, we really need to rethink about how we do value add and how we do investment in community revitalization. We need to find a way to keep these people as part of our community while also bringing growth to these communities. So that was the one that kind of set the tone for me and, and really gave birth to the idea of what Revive would be. What is your best ever deal besides your first deal and your last deal? <laughs> wow. Wow. That's an interesting one. I'll default to the actually the first house that I ever bought. It was the only investment that I didn't make money on. And everything that could have gone wrong in that six or seven, eight year period that I owned it went wrong to the point to where I actually had a realtor who was listing for me who passed away. I went through two more realtors after that before we actually tried to sell it. And then I actually ended up selling the deal myself after getting a tenant in there and working with the tenant. And they had seen all of the work that I'd done it and just kind of the blood, sweat and tears and how I'd managed mm -hmm. the property that they bought it from me. And I sold it at a break even. Obviously, if you did a financial metric on it, it was not a break even. <laughs> but it was one of those things that really taught me the lesson of sticking with something staying true to doing the right thing, which at the time was very difficult. There were so many times I debated just cutting it loose and selling it at a loss. You know, it just kind of taught me how to persevere. And like I said, just stay consistent and stay true to what you're trying to do. What is the best ever way you like to give back? Besides, I guess, your overall investment strategy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You took that one away from me. I was going to say it's one of the things I enjoy about being in a social-based enterprise is that you can kind of have a twofold mission, right? You can make money, but also do good. I'd say on a personal basis, I try to find nonprofits that I enjoy, that I feel have causes that are near and dear to me. And I've just gotten into in a habit of putting them on a reoccurring donation every month. So I think that's been cool to me because then I don't feel like I have to constantly do it. And it's nice kind of getting the occasional thank you card or 
receipt or, or note from people. And I think that's kind of been a good positive thing for me. What's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? Yeah. Overemphasis on finding the deals and not the investors first. That would be the biggest one. And I think you hear it all the time. And it was one of those pieces of advice that I've kind of foolishly felt like, oh, I could do this differently, right? I can find the deal. And I'm sure if I got a good deal, I could find the investors. And I think the problem for that, especially for those of you who are just getting started, is that it just doesn't give you the confidence that you need to proceed aggressively with the Mm -hmm. deal. And it really takes away from all those important factors that you, know, you and I are familiar with as far as the due diligence period and putting your team members together. If you have that anxiety and that fear of trying to get the investment, you're not going to be able to focus and do your due diligence properly the way that it needs to be done. And I would say that's probably one of the most hindering factors by not having your investor pool lined up. That is really good advice. Very good advice. What is the best ever place best ever listeners can reach you? You can always check me out on Twitter. I'm not terribly active there. Email matt.ryan at Revive. And you can also call me at 415-805-8933. Always open to chat with people. And we'll be posting some more information to our blog around Opportunity Zones. Well, Matt, I really appreciate you coming on the show today and talking about Opportunity Zones. I had heard of them before, but I wasn't very familiar, but now I am. You talked about how the tax incentive for people to develop and buy properties in these opportunity zones, which you can find by literally just Googling opportunity zones and then your state. You mentioned that there are a few guidelines, one of them being that you need to invest the same amount as the property value into the property. So if it's a million dollar property and if the land's worth $400,000, then you need to invest at least $600,000 in order to qualify. You mentioned how if you want to get started, you first need to understand where the opportunity zones are and then kind of figure out how much capital you're capable of raising to determine whether you should put a fund together or start off by doing a one-off deal in that area. And then it's gonna be important to make sure you find other individuals to partner with. And then we also went over your strategy for finding deals, which is there's some tech out there now that pulls together these properties and these opportunity zones, and then just your regular lead generation strategy and working with brokers. And then we also talked about how to underwrite these highly distressed deals. And it's similar to just kind of underwriting any deals, making sure you're very careful and are conservative. So putting in a lot of contingencies, although I'm sure there's an emphasis on the contingencies for these types of properties, because a lot more can go wrong, as you mentioned. It's important to find a local expert. So work with a property management company who knows the area very well, and then experienced general contractor to help you estimate the construction costs. Also, you want to make sure that the types of product you're offering is as you're going to be in demand and then make sure that you walk the building multiple times and spend time in the building because each time you visit the property, you're likely going to find something new. So again, Matt, thanks for joining us today. Have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out.